So we will be returning to Romans chapter 6 uh, this morning. We were talking uh, at some time about how eye-opening this particular book is when it comes to very difficult things that we find uh, in Scripture and, and we understand that Romans could very well be the greatest theological thesis that was ever, ever written, ever published. It's had a great effect upon, great impact upon the church over the years. Uh, if you've ever read through it and studied through it, uh, I know that you're challenged to go back to it again and again and again. It's one of those things. I told someone just recently that if I didn't do anything else but preach on Romans, that would consume all my time. I could sit in my office from Monday to Friday, not say a word to anybody, not talk to anyone on the telephone, and my life basically just be consumed with reading and studying the book of Romans. That's how rich this particular book happens to be. And it really should be a great challenge to us. Now, we've been talking recently, the last couple of weeks, about these two very great truths that have to be considered any time we talk about sin and believers. And one of those is this, is that, uh, that there's a real sense in which our sin died on the cross when Christ died. He died for our sin. He covered the full penalty for those sins. So there's a sense in which our, our sin died at that time. When we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we don't come based upon our own sense of self-righteousness. We come to him realizing that we are everything but righteous. And realizing that the, the key to heaven is perfect righteousness. And when it comes down to it, not one of us comes very close to that at all. That we, in fact, if we are going to be saved, if any of us is going to be saved, we're going to have to be able to obtain a righteousness that comes from outside of us. And that's where Jesus comes into the picture. He did it. He did it all for us. The other truth, which Paul is going to get into a lot more detail in chapter 7, has to do with the fact that even though that's true, even though I'm dead to sin, there's also a sense in which sin still lives in me. It's still active in me. And anyone that knows themselves, they don't have anyone to have to explain this to them. You know it's true. You have evil thoughts. You have wicked thoughts. You don't always do the right thing. You don't always say the right thing. There are some real mysteries about the Christian faith, and one of those is this whole doctrine of the Trinity. It is a mystery that goes beyond mystery. But we believe it's true. Why? Because God has said to us that it's true. It's not because of what, what we've discerned of ourselves or this, that, or the other. It's because God has told us that he is, exists as this trinity. And we, at the same time, there's some things we can say about it. There's some things that, that are just still very mysterious about it. How it is that God is one, but at the same time, he's three in person. 
Sometimes people use analogies to try to explain that particular doctrine. I've heard people say, well, think about God as if it's water. You know, uh, water sometimes exists in the form of steam, as, as gassy as water. Other times it's in the form of liquid, and other times it's in the form of a solid ice. Think about God like that. Let me tell you something. That is heresy. That is not an accurate depiction of the, the, the doctrine of the Trinity at all. As a matter of fact, if you believe that is, then you don't understand what the doctrine of the Trinity is. I've heard people say, well, think about it like a, th- a three-leaf clover. That they have the whole clover. You have to have the three leaves. That each one of those l- three leaves brought together uh, make up God. Let me tell you guys, that is a heresy too. The mystery of the Trinity is that the Trinity is, 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 is absolutely unto itself. There is nothing like it. There, there's no analogy that comes close to teaching you the truth and the accuracy of what the Trinity is. So what I would advise you is this, is don't try using analogies because there's not an analogy that does the job. As a matter of fact, every one of those analogies, if you believe what it's saying, is a heresy. We just had a presbytery a few weeks ago and we had examined a a guy that was being uh, ordained as an evangelist that was going to work for MTW uh, in China. And we had, we had examined a friend of his just a, a few months before that who was just, he was a phenomenal uh, examinee. I mean, he had answers to every question that we could come up with. As a matter of fact, it got almost to be a game. We were trying to ask him something he could not answer. Uh, but he answered every one of them. But we noticed this as he was going through. He would, we would ask the question, he'd sit there with his eyes closed and his head down for 30 seconds or so, and then he would start talking. We said, what's going on here? He said, well, what I have to do is because my first language is Chinese, is I have to translate what you ask me from, from English into Chinese and then discern what my answer is going to be and then translate my Chinese answer into English for you. But he was right on the money with everything. But we had another guy that uh, is, is, is being ordained as an evangelist. Uh, and he was a little bit weak on some things. And one of the things he was weak on was his, his doctrine of the Trinity. And uh, it's one of those things that we have to get right. It has to be right. As right as we can get it right. Knowing that no matter how right we think we have it, it still doesn't quite make it all the way. But you may not realize this. There's another very great mystery that's revealed to us in Scripture. And that mystery is the Christian. That there's a sense in which you are a very great mystery as well. How it is that you can be dead to sin and at the same time sin can live in you. As we were saying last week, both of those things are things that we always have to consider when we talk about sin. Very often we don't do that. Very often we emphasize one. Sometimes we do it almost at the total expense of the other one. But any time we talk about it, both of those things need to be considered.
We're going to begin reading this morning with verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey its lust, and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from, uh, from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin before, because uh, we are not under the law? But under grace, may it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the, uh, the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity into lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. Powerful words. Sin shall not be master over you. Period. Yes, sin is still living and breathing in us. Yes, the Lord has given us the vocation of putting that sin to death. That we can never allow ourselves to be in a position where we let sin be the one that is ruling us. That it would be master over us. Sin is the master of the unbeliever. Sin is not your master. Christ Jesus is our master. We serve him. We don't serve sin any longer. We are under grace. We've talked about grace a lot, and we do tend to talk about grace a lot here, and I love it. I love, love, love grace. You can't say grace too often. You can't talk about grace probably often enough. Because we understand that grace is totally unmerited favor that is granted freely to an individual. And what we mean by that is that when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we know it's all by grace. It's not because we're better. It's not because we've killed sin in us. It's not because of this or that. It's because God is just simply a gracious God. And he has chosen to love us. And chosen to save us. He didn't have to. He has chosen to do that. So the question is this, is sin, do we allow sin to be a master over us? Or do we resist it? You remember, we always remember that we do have a master, and that master is not sin, that master is Jesus. 
He's the very thing that defines us. Our relationship with him is everything that we are. Paul, like you see through the book of, of Romans, anticipates questions that people are going to have in regard to the things that he's saying. And he very often gives the answer, and he does that. He says this in chapter, or verse 15, What then shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? See, what he's talking about here, some people believe that grace just kind of frees you to see sin as much as you want to. It's what's called antinomianism. As you saw back in the first verse of this chapter, he was addressing there that some people would have the mindset that, that, if, that if, if, if grace comes because of sin, I should just sin more so I can get more grace. And just like that, he said, or this, he said, may that never be. May that not even enter your mind. That's absurd. That's crazy. That's insane. Grace should drive you in the other direction. Not to sin, away from sin. The reason being that grace evokes appreciation in the heart of the one who receives it. Do you understand that's the rightful motive for us doing what is the will of God, doing what God wants us to do? It's because we appreciate Him for what He has done for us. It's our gift back to Him for the great gift of salvation He's given to us. You see, the law condemns. Grace, on the other hand, forgives. The law commands. Grace encourages. The law enslaves. Grace frees and liberates. The law kills. Grace gives life. The law causes resentment. Grace results in appreciation. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or obedience resulting in righteousness? Can you imagine what it would be like to be a slave to another person? I don't imagine anyone here would be, it would be something that they would seek after. And there have been countless numbers of people down through the generations in all of history that for one reason or another, someone believed they could take ownership of someone else. They took them by force. 
or they paid money for someone else that had taken them by force. And they put them in forced labor. You may not realize it. Because we, when we think about slavery, we tend to just jump back to the Civil War days and, you know, and all of that. But the truth is this, is slavery has been in the world almost since the very beginning of time. Talk about an injustice. What would ever give anybody the right to believe that they have the right to enslave anybody else? But it's happened all through history. It's a demonstration of just how sinful the human heart is that anyone that can, come to, can conclude. Remember, we said this, there's this sense of natural law that every person ought to have that is available to every person. And that is this, is I should not do anything to anyone else that I would not want them to do to me. You don't even need the Bible to teach you that. That is just plain old common sense. Can you imagine anyone saying... I want to be a slave, so I'm going to go out and enslave other people. But you need to realize that this is exactly how the Bible describes you before you were a Christian. That you were a slave, not to a person, you were a slave to sin, you were a slave to unrighteousness. You did that which came natural to you. But where we are today, that is of the old man. That is the, of the old woman. That is, we've come to Christ and sin is still part of our picture, but it's not the central part of our picture. Christ Jesus is. And we must not, we cannot let it have mastery over us. In other words, we must fight it tooth and nail. Not just go with the flow. Not just, as we said before, if you emphasize one of those two truths at the expense of the other one, then you're going to come with all kinds of heresies. If you emphasize absolutely that we are righteous before Christ and our sin is dead without ever thinking about the fact or giving any credence to the idea that sin still lives within us. That you're going to tend to be an antinomian. That's what Paul is speaking against here. In other words, everything is by grace. Is, you know, by grace, 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 grace. Therefore, not one thing is expected of you at all. That whole concept is foreign to Scripture. Certainly it's not the description of Christians that we get from the Bible. He's going to bring this to this conversation to a head in Romans 8, where he say that unless you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will surely die. Unless you are actively involved in putting sin in you to death, you're not saved. In other words, as far as Christians go, it can never become this ho-hum kind of thing. Whoa, my wife, you know, I've just I've got this, this besetting sin that just keeps poking its head up and, and whatever. And what I've got to do is going to be there no matter what I do. i just got to learn to live with it. There may be some sins in your life you're just kind of doing that. Let me tell you, that is a wrong attitude. That is a deadly attitude. 
We are to die to sin. Our vocation includes a lot of things, but that's one of them. The sin would not have rule over us. Before you came to Christ, you were a slave. A slave to sin. Everything you did was sin. You're no longer that person. If you've truly come to faith in Christ, you're no longer that person. Paul rejoices in verse 17, but thanks be to God that though you were slaves to sin, you became obedient from the heart. Obedience is a part of who we are. Obedience to God, obedience to God's word. What Paul says in verse 18 is that, yes, we are still slaves, but we are no longer slaves to sin. We are slaves of righteousness. So where are you? Really. You don't just sometimes feel like the word of God is like a scalpel you pull out every week and it just kind of cuts deeper and deeper and deeper. We need that. We need that. Always remember that you're saved by grace and grace alone. God's grace. If you keep that in the forefront of your mind, then it will transform your life. If you don't, you will find yourself stagnated or digressing. Not moving ahead, just kind of sitting in the same spot you've been in now for a long time. That is not what God's will is for anybody in this room. We are to never be satisfied where we are. Because no matter how hard or how far we've come, we all have a far distance to go. We're in a battle, like Joel was talking about. We're in a battle. And the battle is fought outside of us, but the battle is also fought inside of us. And we don't have the power to overcome the battle outside, but we also, of ourselves, don't have the power to overcome the battle inside. So what do we do? We call on the Lord. 
that he would enable us to do what we cannot do apart from him. We don't think about the battle that often. It's a raging battle. It goes on outside of us, but it also goes on within us. And the neat thing about it is this is even though we know that we're, and I'm not going to say we're schizophrenics here, because let me just tell you, just like there's not an analogy that really describes the, the, the doctrine of the Trinity accurately, there's not another, there's not an analogy that describes what a Christian is accurately either. That there's a sense in which because you are who you are and God has done in you what he's done, you, he makes you absolutely unique. And there's no way in human terms to completely understand that uniqueness. You are new. The old still lives, but it's being put to death by the power of God. Because it can only be put to death by the power of God. That doesn't mean that we sit on the sideline. That's not what you get here from the book of Romans at all. That we are actively involved and engaged in that whole process. Living under righteousness and dying unto sin. And I don't know about you, but paradise sounds awful, awful good. You know, all, this, all the things that go on in this world, some really great things, but also some very wicked and evil and bad things. Probably tired, I'm tired. See, we have a promise that keeps us going. And the promise is that even though things are the way they are now, it won't always be this way. That when Christ comes, He will finally and completely put sin to death in us. Never again. Can you imagine what paradise is going to be like? No sin. Never, ever again in all of eternity will you sin one single time. God can do that. God will do that. That's what this is about. This is one step in his plan to put sin finally to death completely. The death of Jesus Christ that we remember when we, I don't want to say celebrate the Lord's Supper because we certainly don't celebrate it in every sense of the word. But when we participate in it, We're remembering his death for us. To put the nail in the coffin of sin. And I pray that this morning that we would also reflect upon the idea that it's also a picture of the final death and complete death of sin. 
that will happen in the time to come. The praise team is going to come this morning.